Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. In today's episode, I speak with Matteo about integrating our shadows and martial arts as a practice for self-love. Enjoy. Matteo, it's so lovely to have you here. Thank you for joining. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> so um, I'm going to quickly introduce you briefly. Uh, I know you through a mutual friend, actually. And I think the first time we really interacted much was on the Sex Homework Society by our mutual friend Hanin, who was also my very, very first guest on this podcast. So mm. that is that is kind of the reason why you're here. She She thought it would be a really good idea to also have you and to have a conversation about relating to self with you. For the rest, um, you are also part of Sandbox, and that's kind of like the context in which we know each other. And you are a coach, a real one, <laughs> which is kind of like a rare thing. I feel there's so many coaches out there, but not so many of them who have the accreditation. And mm. so I'm also really curious already, looking forward as to how that will perhaps change your perspective on how you relate to yourself, having gone through that mm. kind of, of Uh, official training, I would say. So welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Mm. So my first question is always very simple, um, and it's related to the title of this podcast. I mm. chose this term relating to self, as in literally, how do we relate to ourselves? And I'm always curious as to when you hear that, what does that mean to you specifically? What does it mean to me to how I relate to myself? Um, I guess it's, it's very much, I guess what it first brings up is a certain sense that there, there's something other than myself that I'm relating to, or maybe there's different parts of me that relate to each other in different ways because yeah, it, it is, um, there's me and then there's an image of me and then there's a, there's a, a judgment or an assessment of some of those things or different parts of those things. Hmm, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting perspective. I've, I've never heard anyone say it in these terms. You know, I, we've spoken a lot about these different parts of ourselves and how those relate. And I think that's a very nice metaphor to use actually, mm -hmm. these different voices that we have inside of our head, the different drives that we feel, the different parts of our mm -hmm. personality. But you phrase it very nicely as this, like there's me and then there's the image of me and then there's the judgment or the assessment. And so I'm really curious as to how you came to that kind of like um, quantification of self and how it feels for you, how these parts interact with each other. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, first of all, I think I've never been asked that question and I've never thought of that question in those terms. And so this answer is the first one that's come out of my mouth. 
But I wouldn't say that that is a specific framework uh, that, that I would use. And in fact, even within the sense of there's me and then there's the image of me, that, that I think even that part of me that is you know, me, not an image, is probably many different parts. Uh, mm. so, so much less unified than even that may seem to make it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really feel also that the, the complexity of what we truly are is something mm. that perhaps we will never, never truly comprehend because mm. so much stuff is going on. Right. Um, but I guess what we are working towards in some ways is an understanding of the model that we use of who we are ourselves and mm. then how we navigate that space of being of all these different things. So I'm curious to understand when, when you speak of yourself in relationship to, you know, relating to self, what is your model of yourself? How do you think you function? Mm. Mm. But I, I don't know if Henin has already talked about the internal family systems framework, but that, that might be an interesting way to, to think about it in terms of different parts of ourselves that have their own kind of value systems and purposes. They're all looking out for the system and they're all trying to do good, but sometimes their intentions can go straight. And that's um, where we find that we sometimes act against our own interests uh, in a, in some shape or form. And, and that I really find fascinating because you think, you know, I'm driving a car and I'm making it turn left and it turns left and I'm making it turn right and it turns right. But how often does it happen for us that we have a certain intention and that's not how it comes out of our mouth or in our, in our behaviors. And I find that fascinating. What, what is that disconnect? And, and in trying to explain why and, and how that works, I think a lot of psychology has gravitated towards the sense that there's, there's more than one you in there and they're not always talking or sometimes they're relating to each other in, in unhelpful ways. So, so that's a little bit of how I think about it, but I want to add another layer to it. And this one, I'm, I'm less, you know, that, that first layer, I feel like I've experienced directly a lot and, and, um, the internal family systems method allows you to like, directly have a discussion between those different parts of yourself, which I find quite effective. But then there's another layer, which sometimes, I don't know, people take as a little bit more spiritual and, uh, comes is often applied to work on, on shadow, shadow work. Have you ever heard of shadow work? Yes. And I have engaged with it as well. Yeah. So, so this idea you know, for the listeners, this idea that there's parts of ourselves that have been exiled, that have been pushed into the shadows because they were not accepted in some shape or form at some point in our lives, often in childhood. And then that part of us, because it is denied in some ways, it actually is empowered to do more damage because of its suppression. And it can come out in times when it's least helpful or, uh, when, you know, if we've ever said to ourselves, you know, that, that wasn't me, I wasn't acting myself. I felt like somebody else in that moment. That's probably when something like the shadow may have started to take over. 
often in toxic ways. And, and it's not until we go dig for it and we realize what it is and we then accept it and allow it to be and integrate it in a healthy way that we can, I guess, be a, a fuller version of ourselves because we no longer deny parts of ourselves that are ultimately there. And this is something that people often, um, people often think that there's parts of themselves they don't like. And so they think they can get rid of those parts. <laughs> and, uh, often that just makes it worse. And instead what, what you're looking for is to accept those parts and through that acceptance kind of paradoxically, you end up getting change in the way that you want it. Yeah. I'm really curious as to, because I know there's different methods. How have you yeah. personally worked on integrating your shadows? Yeah, I, I think there's, there, there's been some stuff around maybe aggression. Sometimes people can be afraid to be assertive because the moment they start to assert themselves, it becomes, uh, they're afraid of being like a, a monster or, or, or way too aggressive. And so they never even establish boundaries in the first place. Um, and I think for me, I, I integrated that, um, healthfully, healthily, I think in, uh, relatively young when, when I started doing, uh, more kind of martial arts or track and field. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and I found that that really created a healthy space for a certain kind of aggression to be expressed that then was also controlled. And so I was then able to use that as healthy assertiveness, you know, in regular life. And then, so that, that's one clear example. Another clear example, I think when maybe two or three years ago, when was this exactly? Hmm. I think it was at a time when I had just been diagnosed with some kind of disease in my legs. We didn't really know what it was. And it took a while, it took maybe seven or eight months to figure out what it was, but all the options weren't great. It could have been, I don't know, stomach cancer. And this was a reaction to it, or it could have been, um, an autoimmune disease like hepatitis or AIDS even, um, or it could be a blood infection or some virus. Basically the options weren't great. And I think as I was, um, I've been in that space, I decided to, to, I had read about internal family systems on a textbook because I thought this sounds cool. Maybe I might integrate in my coaching, but then it was asking questions that sounded a bit crazy. It was asking questions like, you know, ask this part of you how old it, it thinks you are. Mm -hmm. and, and I think <laughs> you listen to that and you're like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, that sounds uh, way too far fetched. And so I thought I have to try this myself because that sounds ridiculous. And, um, and I sought out a therapist and, and I have to say, I don't think he was even that good but he was good enough, uh, for, um, for my purposes. And I recorded every session and because I wanted to study it and the kind of questions he was asking. And yet through it, 
I, I start to bring, you know, real things to it. And, and some stuff I brought was around, um, feedback was, was, I, I noticed that there was something in myself and I couldn't quite identify what it was. And I sort of thought maybe it was feedback, maybe it was something else. Cause I noticed some other people around me were great at finding people to help them, finding mentors, learning from people. And as much as I love learning, I never quite found that. I started thinking it must be something to do with the way that I think about the world. It must be something to do with how I'm showing up. Um, and although I didn't really think I had a problem with, with, with feedback, there were still things underlying to that, that through the therapy, I realized, oh, this is what it is. Actually, as a child, <laughs> you know, I started digging into it and I realized as a child, I needed a mentor. And instead of finding a mentor, I became, and, and I didn't have it. And so I became hyper independent. And it became both a strength, but also a shadow when not fully like met, um, with, with some level of dependence some level of ability to like depend on others beyond yourself. And so actually that, that, that ability to, to put some, something important in somebody else's hands to help you out with, um, was the thing that, that really came up for me there uh, in that first time. And that was the very first time I ever went to therapy. Um, and it was interesting because in some ways I was doing it just to learn the method, but also really getting something out of it and, and then realizing, yeah, there's something there. There's parts of me that are sort of denied. There's parts of me, maybe even a vulnerability, maybe even a part of me that is lost and needs direction. Um, I was maybe denying that. And so that, that methodology helped me kind of, bring it to the surface and face it. Yeah. I think that's, that's really beautiful. We've, we've talked about the benefits of therapy and I love that you said, you know, the therapist wasn't that good, but good enough. And I think that's such an important point that especially early on, if you've never had therapy, um, a lot of people tell me like, how do I find a good therapist? Mm. And I think that's a really difficult question, but I think in the beginning also, maybe it doesn't matter so much. Just getting therapy is better than not having any. Mm. So I love that you brought that up. And I also like the idea of, you know, going through personal development and an improvement of how you relate to yourself, of a better understanding of who you are through disease. And that's something that comes up quite often when people go through something that is hard. They are forced to look at certain things that perhaps otherwise they wouldn't look at. So that's also really interesting for me. I want to go a bit deeper on this this idea also of um, using martial arts as a method into working with your shadows. I think mm. that's fascinating because that points at something that I've been very curious about also in the past year, that is the body, mm. you know, because I'm, I'm also um, <laughs> from my early youth, I would say a very kind of like thinking person. Mm. I, I lived a lot in, in my mind and most of the stuff in my life came from there. But then in the past year, I've been making an effort to bring things also to the body and to look at things from the perspective mm -hmm. of the body. And so I would, I would love to understand better how martial arts, arts specifically has, has helped you to not only connect with your body, but then find a canalization of this aggression that you have named. 
Um, could you speak more about that? Mm. Yeah, I, I think it was both martial arts and track and field. So I'd be doing things like you know, hurdles, uh, shot put, discus. And all of those, um, as well as doing some, um, some kickboxing in university as a, as a place to, as a place to express oneself in a way that's not usually allowed. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't, as a student, if I stood up in the middle of the classroom and took my pencil case and shouted it out loud and, and threw the pencil case as far as I could across the room. <laughs> that would be probably frowned upon. And, um, and it seems like something that you might think, well, why would you want to do that anyway? But there's, I think that there's something to our ability to practice a way of being, but then it requires us to, to do so fully free before we can then find the version of it that we can use in any situation. Mm, so it sounds like almost that practice gave you a space of permission in which mm. to experiment with your self-expression. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, mm. As well as bring a certain sense of physical power and physical safety as a result of that power. Not that I thought about this as a, as a young person. Anyway, I didn't have that level of introspection into it, but I think for, for many of us in the world today, we actually live, not all of us, but, but, but in, in many instances, we live a much safer life than homo sapiens has experienced historically. And we end up with a lot of anxieties for things that ultimately don't matter or anxieties that make us behave towards something as though it's a death threat when in fact it's much lighter than that. Even our relationship to change can sometimes, there can be a certain sense of fear of ego death. I fear losing who I am. I fear losing the story that I have of the person I am right now. And I think some sense of physical strength and power can, can at least support a little bit more safety, even in, in, in adventuring into a space where it feels unsafe psychologically. Mm, that's beautiful. I really like that. I think that is indeed an aspect that I had underestimated. Mm. <laughs> and, and it does resonate because also in my youth, um, I often felt unsafe and I mm. wasn't physically strong either. And of course, I had that story of self that I wasn't physically strong. Mm. So that became worse and worse. I also didn't do mm. anything that could have made me strong. Um, I still remember that's one of the one of those things that I feel like, why didn't anyone ever tell me anything about this? Like later on in life, when I discovered like, wait a second, if I put a bit of effort into lifting weights, I mm. get stronger very quickly. Or mm. if I put a bit of effort in just like going for a run twice a week, mm. I improve my ability to run like gigantically very quickly. Yeah. Like 
I had no idea. As a kid, I just thought I was weak. <laughs> Some, someone yeah. should have sort of told me, right? Yeah, yeah. Can, can I ask you a, a kind of maybe a challenging question on that? Of course, please. It, what, what do you think was the payoff to keep that story that I am weak as a mm, child? Beautiful question. Thank you for that. I think the payoff is not needing to change the story. I think there's a certain mm -hmm. sense of safety that gets encrusted in this idea of like, okay, I am a weak person, so I don't mm -hmm. have to put any effort in changing that. I can just mm -hmm. rest in that knowledge that, no, that's how it is. No mm -hmm. need to seek change, no need to take risks. And I think that for me was the main reason to stay in that story. Mm -hmm. And, and yet it sounds like once you realized that you could change and how easy it was to change, you kind of pursued it. Yeah. But that was decades later. <laughs> that was in a very yeah. different environment, very different circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. What, what happened? Sorry. I, I don't want to, but no, what has what to change in your environment for you to start to even experiment with that change? Mm, great question. I think it's very simple. That was just a supportive environment. Mm. Um, I think that happened. I had a girlfriend at the time who did a lot of sports when she was young and mm. she kind of like teased me into it. And I remember actually that was the first time, um, it was the 20 kilometers of Brussels. Brussels has this like quite famous run for 20 kilometers. And I think 25,000 people show up for that every year or something. And I remember we were kind of like following that because a friend of hers was doing it. And I said something like, Wow, that's impressive. I could never do that. And then she was like, yes, you could. And I'm like, what do you mean? It's like, well, you just have to train. And I'm like, that's impossible. Mm. I'm not that kind of person. And she kind of like mm. teasingly challenged me. And that's how I started running. And I remember the very first time I went running with her, I think I ran for 30 seconds and then I was out of breath and I had to stop. <laughs> But then a year later, I ran that 20 kilometers and mm. I was amazed at the ability of my body to change in that way. But so all it took was a supportive environment, someone who knew that and who believed in my ability to change. Mm. Beautiful. So, so you can see there kind of the, the two paths to that change. Sometimes we use the physical to make us feel safe enough to change psychologically. And then sometimes psychologically we've created that safety enough to change physically. Yeah. Beautiful. I like that. I'm curious as to now in your reality now in your daily life, because I assume you, you don't do the martial arts anymore because you speak of that as something as a, as a, as a yeah. younger person, what is your current body practice that helps you connect with yourself, you know, get in touch with how you feel, express yourself, all those things. Yeah. Hmm. Well, now it's a little bit reduced because of the, the pandemic, it used to be dancing. Dancing used to be my main thing. I, I danced Brazilian Zouk and, um, there's really nothing quite like being surrounded by incredible dancers and, and, um, and just dancing for six hours in a row, barely with a break. Um, it, like as a partner dance and when it's really special, you might find some random connection that, you've never met this person and all of a sudden you connect and you dance for three hours straight in this kind of hypnotic state of creativity. Um, it's really kind of magical. 
Um, obviously right now I don't have as much chance to do that. Although I do dance with my partner here, which is lovely every once in a while. So from a body perspective, there's that, but certainly, you know, it keeps on exercising. It used to be a little bit of running, but, uh, <laughs> I got hit by a motorbike about a year ago. Oh <laughs> I've had a, a few mishaps and, um, and, uh, slowly my knee got worse and worse. And so I was kind of reduced, mm. but I've managed to find the right physio and scout better. better. Mm. Um, so, so it's, it's a bit of a mix. Yeah. I'm curious about the dancing because obviously yeah. what you describe is incredible. It's beautiful. This trance-like state, but I wonder, is there in that dancing practice, a kind of intentional process where you go like, I'm doing this to also have a better relationship with my body or to feel mm. into what's real for me? Or is it just purely the Brazilian Zouk experience? I don't know what Brazilian Zouk is like, but I used to dance some tango. And I know that when I went dance tango, it wasn't mm. about relating, relating to my body. It was more about like, mm. look, I'm going to do tango. And then I followed mm. those patterns. Mm. You know? So I'm, I'm curious mm. if you come to the dance floor with the intention of relating to your body. Mm. That's interesting. I guess, you know, even before that I used to dance salsa. And one of the reasons I left was because the way I was relating to that environment was one in which salsa was very, just showy, very showy. It was kind of fun and light, but it didn't really feel connected. Not at least for me. I'm sure other people do feel that way. And that's why I, I, I changed. With Zouk, I found, and one of the reasons I stayed with it, without necessarily having to create an intention. It was easy to, to feel a deep sense of, um, connection to self, to the dancing partner, to the music and to some kind of ethereal creative energy. And I don't really go into it with an intention of, I want to learn something about myself and my body and, and connecting to myself in some way that just happened to be a side effect, but a pleasant one. Yeah. Because I ask, because for me, definitely that's part of my dance practice. Mm. I, I do ecstatic dance. Well, again, mm. also not now, obviously, but uh, when possible, I do ecstatic dance. Mm. And that is exactly the reason why I engage with ecstatic dance as a practice It's to improve my relationship with my body and kind of like mm. give my body permission to express itself without judgment in a way that otherwise it wouldn't do. And that's mm. always very interesting for me to see what comes up, not just mm. from my body, but then mm. also in my mind and in my emotions, mm. you know? Mm. And so I'm wondering in other dance practices like yours, um, it sounds like it's more like, um, a side effect that you appreciate, but it, it's not the direct intention. Yeah. And well, I mean, I also find that what I focus on is, is expressing my emotions through the dance mm. and maybe that by its nature ends up creating that connection to self. But if, if you don't, or at least when I don't, when I, when I'm not channeling my full self through this movement, it's less connected. It's less interesting. It's less transcendental. Uh, it might be, Sound, sounds funny to, to call it transcendental, but what I really mean is, is a sense that you and your sense of self has expanded. It is 
you, you now exist beyond yourself because your body quite literally does. I can feel my partners, my dancing partners feet through our connection with our arms or our chest. Um, I can close my eyes and I can pretty much know exactly what their body looks like and where it's at at any one moment. My intentions get translated directly through their body and the same from them to me. And when you know the new music well enough, you can also already feel the beat and what's about to happen next and therefore creatively predict what to do and how to fit that musicality. So quite literally, I think you, your, your sense of self really expands and, and, and that I, I don't, I don't know any other words than transcendental to describe that. And it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful feeling that, that I think in, in many instances, it's, it's, um, it's super recharging, super healing, super expanding. You come away from an experience like that with a hint of that bigger self, that bigger version of you. And that's just wonderful. It's beautiful. I love it. I can't wait to dance again. Thank you for reminding mm. me of that, Matteo. <laughs> I want to dive into something else that I'm really curious about. And that is indeed, um, you being a coach and having gone through that training and, you know, coaching others. And what I'm curious about is if this whole process of learning to help others be closer to who they are and express themselves in that has changed your own relationship to yourself. It's hard to say which part of that process is the thing that changed myself. But so you would say there is a change. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, like no hand, no. Yeah. I, I mean, I've, tra I've, I've trained over a thousand people now to become coaches themselves. And what I tell them in the introduction days all the time is look, you can, you will change your relationships will change as a result and not everybody will stay. And you have to be ready for that. If you're going to learn how to do this well. And the reason for that is coaching is not just some technique that you do on the side. Sometimes when, you know, we teach it for managers, it's like a coaching approach to management. Yeah, it does a little bit, but it's not a f like, if you really do it well, it's a fundamentally different structure of perceiving the world and thinking about the world and your relationship to it. If you do it really well, because you're now, you're now, able through enough practice to notice your own triggers, to notice the underlying dynamics of what's going on with other people and how that might be relating to you. And you're now perceiving, well, at least my experience is that when I speak to people, I, I sometimes <laughs> it's hard to turn it off. You have this ear for things like, Ooh, that's, that sounds like there's something missing there or there's a gap or here's some values that might be underlying it or here's some interesting beliefs. Here's some assumptions. Here's some limiting beliefs. And, oh, this person sounds like they're motivated by that and, or that. And, and there's a certain curiosity because now you have so much more material to work from because you can see it or hear it or feel it. And, and so curiosity gets 
gets brought out and then the questions dive in and then you get to learn so much more about people's way of thinking than if you hadn't learned how to be a coach. And, and then you can learn from that. You get to, 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 to think, well, how might I use that perspective or what would it be like to think in that way? What could I see that I don't see now because of that way of seeing? And then sometimes, of course, when you're working with clients, there's this weird cosmic irony that the clients that come to you seem to have your own shit. (laughs) 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 They seem to have, you know, elements or, or exactly the same stuff that you need to work on yourself. And, and then your clients serve as this wonderful mirror. And as we coach them, we're really coaching ourselves at times. And I might ask a, a question and then go, Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I should reflect on that myself <laughs> later on. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I, and I wonder, like, what would you say is the way in which you have changed most because of that, going through that process of becoming a coach, of doing the work, working with others mm. has changed most in your relationship with yourself because of that? Mm. Mm. two things one is my curiosity of people i i started out um my career as a physicist actually i I did a master's in physics i was very much about ideas and concepts and the abstract and i didn't really care much for people's lives or opinions and so forth I want, I want to learn and I want people who can teach me stuff and, and I like to have intellectual arguments and, and that was really it. I mean, not, not as black and white as that, but mostly, you know, 90%. <laughs> and, um, doing coaching suddenly opened the doors for me to realize that it's not just the universe that is interesting. And therefore I studied and wanted to understand how does the universe work? But in fact, we all have our own universe in our mind. And once I had the tools to explore that other universe that that we all uniquely have, all of a sudden I was just as interested in that as I was with the physical world. And that, that was a massive shift in how I related to people. Certainly. The other element is a certain kind of, my motto in life really is love and acceptance. Every experience I've had, the, you know, the toughest of times, what were the things that most helped me through it? What was the things that basically made me um, anti-fragile to the situation? Accept it and bring some love. <laughs> and that attitude allows me to be non-judgmental with my clients in the coaching. And that's useful and you need that for work, but oh my God, does it change your friendships? Does it change your relationship to your family and the kind of partner that you'd be able to have in the future? I wouldn't be able to be with my, my lovely partner that I love very much now. I wouldn't be able to be with her if I hadn't grown to a place where I had more 
acceptance and compassion within myself. Because then you can create that place of non-judgment for others and allows them to be their fullest self. And then you get to have the joy of being with the fullest expression of this amazing person. And I think in a lot of relationships, we don't see the best of each other because of those little judgments, those resentments, those, um, that, that consciously or not are felt and slowly, if not quickly create a space where we don't, we don't express ourselves fully. Yeah, that really resonates with me. And it reminds me of something that came up in the episode I had with Troy, in which Troy said something like, you know, the, our relationship with ourself kind of creates the reality of how we see relationships with others as well. It creates what we expect of others, how we, how we judge others is a reflection of how we do that with ourselves. And so this very much resonates with what you just said, this idea of having this love and acceptance for yourself then enables you to have it for others and to experience this joy of fully seeing them without judgment. Mm. I also love this thing you said, uh, you know, about being a physicist. That was one of my career options, I guess, when I was like <laughs> 17, 18. Uh, physics was very attractive to me as well. But I love this phrase, what you said, we all have our own universe in our mind. Mm. I think that's just so beautiful. And it feels so true also because the, the vastness of the exploration of the mind and in larger terms, the body and the emotions and everything that we go through is such a rich, incredibly huge exploration mm. that seemingly goes on forever. I believe, I think it's a never ending practice. So I really love how you related that to, to physics. But what I'm curious about is then to me, the exploration of physics as a, as a discipline, is, is a science, right? So it's very rigorous. It has like a process. So I'm really curious if you brought that rigor and that kind of like process-based reasoning also to your exploration of your own mind. Yeah, that definitely within, it requires a little bit of adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> if you're, if you're looking for data that is precise to you know, 10 to the minus 18 <laughs> uh, of decimal places, you, this is not the space for you. So from that perspective, yeah, that does take some adjustment, but I see a lot of parallels too. To do good science, you need patience. You need um, an ability to take something complex and, and untangle it. You need really good observational skills. And I find that all of that is directly relatable to, to what you have to do as a coach, you know, to help people um, untangle all of the things that might be going on. Them. Yeah. And I would add all yeah. of these things are also essential to navigate a better relationship with yourself. Yeah, exactly. So, so there's that perspective. Um, but, but I think there's also, a sense that no amount of studies can deny when something works for you or not. If you did something and that seemed to work for you, great. Like it doesn't matter if double blind studies seem to suggest 
that on par, it's not a statistically significant improvement to use this particular methodology. I think those studies are difficult to do. There's a lot of challenges with doing really precise psychology, psychological studies that allow you to really say, we know this for sure. And short of, short of not getting stuck in a rut by continuing to try something that clearly doesn't seem to be working. Cause that's the other possibility you do something. Uh, I don't know. Let's say that the night there was a full moon, it seemed to work, you know, something seemed to work for you. And now every time there's a full moon, you, you decide that, that this needs, you know, this is how, you, you know, this is how you're going to fix yourself <laughs> or, or fix the problem. It's, um, that, that might not work for you. And it was just a placebo effect or it was just uh, uh, your own illusion. So you have to be careful that you're not, you're not fooling yourself. And Richard Feynman, one of the most famous physicists, often used to say, you are the easiest person to fool. Yeah. So, so, so there's that element to it. But there's things like, I don't know, maybe you do a visualization and that seems to work for you. Not a lot of data, the visualizations actually do much at times uh in, in certain methodologies but hey look i keep doing it i keep getting the result that i want fantastic so i often say you are the ultimate decider whether something works or not in that space yeah i, I love that i often say that as well sorry something like you know no matter what people speak about on this podcast no matter what i say has worked for me I think every mm. single person who wants to improve their relationship with themselves should find the ways and the method and the practices that mm. work for them. And that mm. may be very different. And I think that mm. exploration is what matters, which is also why I'm so surprised that there are so many people out there who, who come at people with like, you know, I know how to do this. I have the truth, mm. follow these simple mm. 17 guidelines and you will live a good life or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm very happy that you bring this up, Matteo, this idea of you are the ultimate decider of what works for you, right? And, mm -hmm. and in that sense, mm -hmm. indeed, it is quite different from science that is like, I guess, an objective um, shared reality mm -hmm. that we're trying to build, like an understanding of things mm -hmm. that are always true, regardless of the person who, who does the measuring or who does the experiment. And mm. on the other hand, our own inner world, uh, yeah, works, works differently. So thank you for that mm. beautiful highlight. Mm. I like that. As we go towards the end of this conversation, Matteo, um, I would like to ask you a traditional question that is a bit of a curveball, but I like it. And that is very simply, what question would you have loved to receive in this conversation that I didn't ask you? Mm. Mm. Well, what's the thing that has most increased your awareness recently? Mm, beautiful question. I have to ask, what's the thing that <laughs> has increased your awareness most recently? I'm really curious now. You, you have to give us an answer. Yeah. Yeah. Chess. 
wow, that, that I did not expect that. Can you say more about that? Mm. Yeah. So I started, um, started playing chess partly to, you know, to connect with my, with my father actually, but, um, and partly also inspired by the Queen's Gambit. (laughs) Great, great show. And, um, and ever since I've started, it's been a bit of an obsession. I think I've been playing maybe an hour every day, if not more. And, um, and kind of obsessively, I even, in fact, I even have it here. I've got a, a huge book on, on chess strategy and, and how to think about stuff. And probably it wouldn't have happened unless it was a pandemic, but <laughs> there's, there's something really fascinating about how much of a mirror chess can be to my own, um, my own flaws, really. The, the thing with chess is that there's always a higher level than you. Even when you're a world champion, there's, uh, you know, now there's a computer that's going to kick you butt. <laughs> there's, it's guaranteed you will make some kind of mistake. And it's guaranteed that even if you are get good enough, there's another level and there's another level. And so there, there's the space where you can, you can, if you keep pushing yourself, you don't really linger very much at all on any space of comfort and of winning. You're, you're always at an edge of challenging yourself and that reflects a lot of stuff back to you. And what I saw in myself was impatience. Uh, tunnel vision, unwillingness to, to, to think through all the permutations and, and a certain sense of, oh, it doesn't matter. Just do it and see what happens. And those things I know exist in my life as well. And they don't come up nearly as often in my regular day to day life as they do in chess, because in chess, I'm always at that edge. And the advantage of that is if I tried to practice only for the moments in life where that came up, they're too few and too rare for me to properly practice on them in that space. And, and often they might come up when they most matter. And then they really have a bit of a, mm-hmm. a, a big impact. And so this has felt like an incredible space to continuously work on exactly that mindset that allows me to under pressure, not allow those mistakes of, of thinking to come up. Wow. Yeah, this is awesome. This is really good, Matteo. Thank you. I, as you, as you were speaking, I was reflecting and I think you're right. I mean, I've played some chess in my life, not, not mm. much in a very low level, but I now feel something like, yes, I noticed that I have an attachment to a story mm. through chess. And that manifests as like, you know, you have a, a very simple strategy. I'm going to push mm. that pawn forward and then they're going to take that. So I'm going to do this and this. And that's the story. And you're attached to that story. And then information changes because obviously your opponent does something different, but somehow 
you still want to make that story happen. You're kind of like you're staying in the past there. That's mm. one of the things that I now understand that indeed chess has shown me, but I've never used it as, as you now do as a method to kind of like see that edge as a mirror and then be able to work on those things exactly when, when the possibility arises and in chess it arises all the time. I think that's absolutely brilliant. That's mm. so beautiful. Thank you, Matteo. And I mean, one thing to add there is even when you know that it's amazing to see yourself still make exactly the mistake that you know you make <laughs> in that moment and then going, what am I doing? <laughs> I know this is a thing. And yet the awareness is not enough at times. And because in the moment you lose that awareness for a microsecond and you're done. Yeah, well, I guess it's not just about the awareness. I mean, it's one thing to have the awareness, but then you also need to know what to do instead. Exactly. So it, it's, the, it's the building of the alternative behavior, the alternative habit. Yeah. And sometimes people think, oh, once I know about it, I'll change it. Or now I know about it. Why hasn't it changed? It's like, no, no, <laughs> we're much simpler machines than that. Like there, in some ways, like you, you just have to repetition, repetition, repetition. And in order to break that down. Mm. Yeah, I like that. I really like that. Wow. This is a wonderful place to end this conversation, Matteo. Thank you so much. This was really nice. I'm almost inspired to play chess again, but I know I shouldn't because <laughs> that's going to take too much of my time. Um, <laughs> one last thing before we part ways. Is there mm. anything that you would like to share with people listening to this podcast? Like, can they follow you somewhere? Can they read your thoughts somewhere? Is there anything that you can offer them? Yeah, they can just um, find me on my LinkedIn. Uh, that's where you can find me, Matteo Trevisan. And um, I'd be happy to connect. Awesome. Then I will make sure to put your LinkedIn link in the description of this podcast so people can easily find you. And I hope you have awesome connections through there. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. Matteo, thank you so much. Have a beautiful rest of your day. And I'm sure we'll connect soon again. Yeah, have a good week. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>